Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, August 24th, 2010. Yes, in typical Roseboro fashion, I have too many things to do for this program. So I'll tease you with some topics and we'll get to the others. There's just too much going on. There's a big pile that heresy season has come early. Labor Day hasn't even happened yet and we're a full-blown heresy season. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, these are treacherous times. There's a whole bunch of people uh, in churches, uh, on stage, behind pulpits, that are saying things that, well, <laughs> just aren't taught in Scripture. As a result of it... Um, we need to uh, be wise to test everything, to do the work of a Berean and to compare what people are preaching to God's word and make sure that what they're preaching is what God's word says in context. Because uh, I hate to say it this way. This is just probably a crass way to put it. There's a lot of guys out there who are really interested in growing big churches because they claim they have the, a heart for the lost. And as a result of it, they've discovered that they can attract a large number of people into their building by, well, telling lost people what lost people want to hear. Uh, that's not reaching the lost with the biblical gospel. Christ said, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name uh, and, well, to all nations. You know, based, that's the job that the church has been given to do till he comes back. Yeah, that's that kind of stays in effect. And so if a pastor in the name of evangelism has decided to shave off some of the rough edges of, of, of the gospel and, you know, kind of hide the cross, you know, we don't want to be offensive. We They've discovered that they can attract a whole bunch of non-believers to their, quote, church if they just stop being a church. So then the question is, are they really being a church? And are these people really being reached for Jesus Christ when, you know, the offense of the cross is missing? Well, I kind of work from the idea that you can't preach the cross without actually preaching the cross. You can't reach people for Christ without actually, you know, doing what he said, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. That would include 21st century United States, 21st century, 21st century Australia, uh, 21st century United Kingdom, Ireland, Norway, whatever nation it is, you know, um, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That means you have to do the, <clears throat> the, uh, 
the uneasy, uncomfortable, and unpopular work of, well, telling sinners that they're sinners. You know, laying out, you know, you have transgressed God's law, you are a wretched, rotten, miserable sinner, and you have deserved, you've earned God's wrath, you've earned hell. And um, and as a result of it, if God gives you what you've earned, um, well, you're eternal toast is probably a good way to put it. It's not it's not good. Uh, prognosis for eternity bleak, bad, not, uh, no bueno. And but there's good news, and and the good news is that you know all those sins that you've committed and will commit, well, Christ died on the cross for those. He he actually took your place on Calvary. He was nailed to the cross and suffered your punishment in your place. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. Uh, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And and so there's good news, and that is, is that Christ, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, died in your place and is offering you for free full and complete pardon. And he insists that you repent of your wickedness and your sinfulness. Change your mind about the fact that you're a good person. And trust in him for the forgiveness of sins that he won for you on the cross. And see, when that, that message just, you know, really, really upset some people. In fact, I uh, sent out a tweet not too long ago explaining uh, that uh, biblical Christianity preaches that Christ is, was scourged, naked, bruised, bleeding, and dead on the cross for your sins. And believe it or not, uh, somebody, well, took issue with that and said that that was a terrible, awful, disgusting concept. Right. That's the offense of the cross. And see, that message really doesn't do a, v- well, how do I put it? Um that will never be seeker sensitive because there's no such thing as a seeker. It, well, there is one seeker. That's Jesus Christ. He came to seek and save the lost. But see, yeah, the seeker-driven guys they think that the, that everyone out there is just looking for looking for Jesus. And and if you just present him in a in a kinder and gentler way and stop talking about sin and wrath and hell and damnation and and, you know, blood sacrifice and propitiation and wrath and forgiveness, that more people would be willing, willing to, you know, give Christianity a good college try. You see, you're not reaching the lost when you do that. No, you're you're really not. I don't care how many decisions you have, quote, you know, at the end of a particular service. We're not saved by our decisions anyway. In fact, that's the heresy of Pelagianism. And so, yeah, the whole thing is up backwards, upside down, just it ain't right. And so what well, will we do the tough, un, unkind? Well, there's people out there well, do, doing the, the narrow work of presenting the narrow path, Christ and him crucified for our sins. It's not politically correct. It may not make your self-esteem uh, inflate. In fact, you might actually leave the, this, listening you know, to this program not feeling the best about yourself. You might actually be confronted with your sins here on this program and uh, and be told the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. That being the case, um, that's the best news you could possibly hear. And leaving, you know, after listening to the program, feeling good about yourself, well, that's just like, it's say that it's not high on my priority list would be like a complete understatement because it's not on the list at all. Yeah, and my, I have, you know, 
I have no goal ever set on this program. You know, each each edition of Fighting for the Faith, there's a particular goal I have in mind. I'm I'm trying to teach a particular thing or undermine a particular false doctrine and replace it with a, a particular true doctrine. There's certain themes I try to work with in the in the program. That being said, there are some goals that I'm trying to achieve on a program by program basis. But never once have I ever had the goal that uh, that at the end of the program you would just have warm fuzzy feelings about yourself. <laughs> yeah, so if you're looking for that, uh, you need to change stations because Pirate Christian Radio ain't the place for you. If you're looking, you know, to have your ego propped up, to have your ego stroked, and for me to tell you, oh, look, you're just the apple of God's eye, and uh, you know, I want you to feel the warm fuzzies about, yeah, that's just not going to happen here. Yeah, it's it's true. So I begin the program with a tangent and a huge list of things that I want to get to. Isn't that just smart? And yeah, no. So let's uh, let's talk about what could potentially be on deck today. Because um, as I said at the top of the program, I've overprepared, and well, we've got way more stuff than we can possibly talk about. I did want to talk about uh, to continue my discussion discussion regarding biologos. Uh, Biologos, um, they, we covered the fact that they answered the question just quite unbiblically as to whether or not Adam was a historical person. Jesus believed Adam was a historical person. Apparently they know better than Jesus, but then again, he rose again from the grave on the third day, proving that he was the one true God in human flesh. And um, I'm going with Jesus. Yeah, going with Jesus on this one. But uh, anyway, um, the, Carl uh, Giberson, Ph.D., Dr. Carl Giberson from Biologos, from the Biologos Foundation and Eastern Nazarene College. Yeah, by the way, uh, um, the Nazarene Church has v- taken a hard turn to the left, and um, I, I don't know if it can be saved. Yeah, yeah, it's I I don't know if if it's worth even recovering at this point. I grew up in the Nazarene Church, legalism uh, par excellence, and yeah, cer- certainly as um, night follows day, um, uh, legalism is followed by liberalism. Just something I've noticed. Um, just one of those hard and fast rules that seems to happen in the life of a, of a denomination, a church body, or whatever. Liberalism, it, you know, legalism sows the seeds for liberalism. It's just one of those things. Um, both are two sides of the same coin. They're both wrong. But uh, anyway, just want to put, point that out. But Carl Giberson, Dr. Carl Giberson, from the Biologos uh, Foundation, um, over the weekend, was it the weekend? Uh, yeah, the, over the weekend, there was an article posted in the um, Huffington Post, which, by the way, is not really known for its, uh, shall I say, sane, um, unbiased commentary. Um, and the, the headline read, How Darwin Sustains My Baptist Search for Truth. And boy, I tell you, this article couldn't have been more misnamed. If I mean, it's just a, it's a shot at Al Mohler. If you remember a while back, I, I don't know how many weeks back it was, but here at Fighting for the Faith, I played Dr. Mohler's um, recent lecture that he delivered on, you know, how old is the earth and how, you know, and, and, and Dr. Muller gave a fantastic and brilliant biblical and theological apologetic for a young earth. Yeah. And, um, and, and he, well, let's just say that, um, Dr. Muller in passing mentioned a book, um, 
that Biologos uh, had their hand in and, well, just didn't consider their conclusions to be the best. And so this article entitled How Darwin Sustains My Baptist Search for Truth um, is really not a, a story about uh, Dr. Carl Giberson's search for truth and apparently how Darwinian evolution and the Christian faith can meld together and walk down the primrose path hand in hand. Uh, no, it, it, in, in reality, this is um, a shot at Al Mohler. And it's it's just nasty. And not only that, it's they don't even touch a he, uh, Dr. Carl Giberson doesn't even touch a single biblical argument that Dr. Al Mohler raised. And so uh, we'll be talking about that probably today. And, you know, and I think that um, uh, Phil Johnson from the Pyromaniacs blog, he had a pretty nice um Retort to uh, Dr. Giberson's piece. I, I'm kind of hoping that Al Mohler uh, drives uh, Dr. Giberson crazy by not even acknowledging the um, the shot at him. <laughs> now, another story I want to read. Now, remember yesterday I told you I said, "Listen, we can you know Islam is is uh, I'm serious. Islam is a paper tiger. You're saying well, they kill people, they blow people. Yeah, I understand that. We could take them." Yeah, and the reason I say that is, well, because they don't even have a real God, and we do. We have a crucified and risen Savior, and we have the gospel and the Holy Spirit, and we have the weapons of the Holy Spirit, which are designed to, you know, take down strongholds. Well, if you remember yesterday's program, I made this point, well, searching the news today, found a headline uh, from the, uh, Christian, uh, the Christian news uh, uh, website, Evangelists say Muslims coming to Christ at a historic rate. Yeah, evangelists say Muslims coming to Christ at a historic rate. I just want to read a little bit from this article and to basically say, hmm, evangelists who are um, trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ in Middle Eastern countries are saying that Muslims are converting to Christianity at an unprecedented rate. <clears throat> we'll talk about that in just a little bit. And uh, let's see here. We could talk about <laughs> this is just <sighs> the Birkbeck Institute at the uh, the Birkbeck uh, Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities at the University of London in October uh, in October of '09 held a um, I just ran across this a uh, held a, a, a an event. Entitled Atheism in Christianity. You're thinking, well, why are you going to talk about it now? It's already happened because this is one of the most asinine things I've ever read. Talk about irrational. But I, I will see, we could talk about that. And then, of course, we've got Patricia King. And Patricia King, she's one of my favorites. I love playing the uh, Fractured Fairy Tale music. And she has a recent video that went up at the XPmedia.com website entitled Are You Ready? And I think this video although she didn't intend for it to do this, clearly demonstrates that this woman's, quote, gospel is not the biblical gospel, and she doesn't know what she's talking about theologically. But then again, I don't really think that many of the listeners to this program are in danger of, you know, going, oh, maybe Patricia King really does experience the glory of God. Maybe she really has Ascended into heaven and been invited into the uh, into G into God's wine cellar and and drank the wine of God Himself and maybe all those gold dust and 
miracles are true, and maybe she's really raising people from the dead. Well, actually, she never said that they're raising from the dead, but she does support a mortuary ministry where people try to go and raise people from the dead. And maybe that's all really from God. I don't think there's a lot of listeners to this program who are in danger of that. So, but I, again, you, this is just proof positive that her, all of her signs and miracles, even if they were real, should be ignored because this woman doesn't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, um, we've got a lot on our plate today, man. We've got a lot, a lot on our plate. And of course, the other thing is I got an email. I got a couple of emails. I'm a little bit behind on the email. So, um, maybe I should roll the dice. I get a dartboard out. Um, you know, uh, maybe I should wait for the glory cloud to come and tell me which things we should cover here today at fighting for the faith. But I think I know what I want to do. I think I know where we should go first. I think, in fact, I think we should do some email. You see, I, I'm certain that uh, when you guys uh, type an email and send it to me, this is the speed in which you type, and it sounds just like this. From the UK, uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, who is, uh, well, unofficially the fact checker here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, he writes, uh, re- Chris, dear Chris, regarding the uh, Domination series, yeah, if you remember, what we did here is um, we played three of the four sermons in an entire sermon series and reviewed them. And uh, it, it was uh, David Hughes uh, with Church by the Glades, the Domination series. And uh, Pastor Chur- Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley writes, he says, regarding the Domination series, it seems that David Hughes needs to learn a little bit more about the Bible. He kept talking about Joshua as a young and untested leader when, in fact, Joshua was one of the two oldest men in Israel at the time, the other being Caleb. Uh, he and Caleb alone survived of the generation that came out of Egypt as adults. Uh, this is, this is, as an old man, 60 years or so, uh, who was trusted, who was the trusted aide of Moses. You know, you bring up a good point, you know. Because apparently one of the things that his entire argument hinged on is like, oh yeah, you know, domination and 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 you know, and here you know, y- y- we've got this untested young leader. And no, Joshua was um, well, probably well along the way in creeping decrepitude. You know, I'm I'm heading down that path myself too. By the way, uh, it, it came to my attention that uh, in a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, I pointed people to the Letter of Mark blog, and I. Completely misspelled it. Yeah, talk about creeping decrepitude. It's letter of Mark, L-E-T-T-E-R-O-F of M-A-R-Q-U-E. I said O-V. Yeah, creeping decrepitude. So yeah, Joshua was not a young man at the time of the, you know, that Israel went into the promised land. He and Caleb were the only two adult survivors of the generation who left Egypt. Only two. Yeah, so and he was the trusted aide of Moses for many years. He he was in fact the best trained leader in the nation, having been the assistant to the leader at the, the entire time, which was in effect an apprenticeship in leadership. Great point, Pastor Charmley. He says nor was Joshua a novice in warfare. He'd been fighting battles since the other leaders had been children. Uh, when they'd been playing war, he'd been out there risking his life and staining the desert with bl- the blood of their enemies. <laughs> That's a well-put phrase. 
Uh, Exodus 17, uh, Joshua's first appearance, records how he led the army of Israel when he was really a young man against the Amalekite forces. Moses, remember, was a prophet and over 80, and so Joshua had been the commander of the army. And in Numbers 13, we read that he, like all the other spies, was a chief in the tribe of Judah, a leader in his own tribe. Joshua was far from an untried young leader. He was a seasoned, trained, prepared man whom we would regard today as, if anything, a little too old. While it is understandable that a novice with no real biblical knowledge might think Joshua was a young man, that a pastor would do so beggars, uh, 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 beggars belief. Beggars belief. I think that's a UK euphemism. We'd say begs. No, well, you know what I'm saying. He first appears in Exodus 17 as a young warrior leading the army, so he was at least in his 20s. The fact that he was a chief of the tribe of Judah suggested he was older than that. But let us say for the sake of argument that he was in his mid-20s when Israel left Egypt, although this is in fact an unrealistically low figure. Simple math demands that by Joshua chapter 1, he was at least 65 years old. At the time of his death, he was 110 which gives us 45 years for the taking of the land, which is a rather high figure. The old chronology of the Archbishop Usher, as given in my old copy of Matthew Henry's commentary, calculates that Joshua 24 takes place in 1427 B.C., while Joshua 1 takes place in 1451, thus making Joshua over 80 at the entry into Canaan. This is more likely, but in any case, Joshua was at least over 60 and one of the two oldest Israelites. In Numbers 14.30, we are told that he and Caleb were to be the only two of that generation who would come into the promised land. There is no way that a group of men who were 40 years younger than him at least would ever question his judgment. He could literally say that he had been fighting battles since they had been infants, which of course is why we never read of anyone questioning Joshua's tactics. The picture of the general shock on being told to walk around Jericho is excellent, but utterly untrue to the facts. Thank you, Pastor Charmley. You do us all a fantastic service, not only in your preaching, but also in your excellent emails. Thank you very much. Okay, moving along here. Um, Boy, what do I want to do? Um, I got to make a decision. Got to make a decision. I think I'm going to, um, well, yeah, let's do this. Yes, that's right, Patricia King. The gift that keeps on giving. Uh, one of the latest uh, videos at the extremeprophetic.com or xpmedia.com website is a uh, video by Patricia King entitled, Are You Ready? Now, I want you to listen carefully because... Uh, the question I have is, is salvation by grace alone through faith alone by Christ's work alone in um, Patricia King's theology? I mean, can we call it a theology? But uh, that's the question that needs to be answered. Now, she claims that she has all these miraculous things happening in her life. The glory cloud, uh, gold dust and sapphire and, and gemstones and anointing oil and all of these these big manifestations of the glory of God. Yeah, but see, here's the deal. Even if she was actually able to raise people from the dead, even if she miraculously was able to have real gold appear and all of these miracles were actually real, which they're not, by the way, 
uh, we shouldn't listen to her. The reason why is because she brings a different gospel to us, and this particular specimen of a video brings that to light. Listen carefully. Hi, Patricia King here. Are you ready for the fullness of what God has in store for you? Sure, why not? Okay, I'm ready. Are you ready for accelerated measures of the glory? Are you... Uh, what? How do I get ready for that? Ready for the coming bridegroom. Are You, you mean the second coming of Christ? Am I ready for the second coming? Abso absolutely. Why? Because there's nothing I have to do to get ready for the Christ's return. He's the one who saved me, sanctified me, washed me in his blood, made me uh, pure and holy in God's sight, has declared me righteous. All is a gift, by the way. I, I, so I, I, I'm ready. Are you ready to be empowered? Are you ready to run your race? You know, whenever um, you know a sports event takes place, I was just watching um, a, a sports program last night, actually, and they were interviewing a football player, and he's getting ready for the season. And he was asked that question by the newscaster. He says, are you ready? Are you ready? Give us a little glimpse of what you think the season is going to look like. Now, can you imagine a football player getting ready to launch into his season? This is professional football on television. And he says, you know what? I didn't bother practicing, you know, in the, you know, I, no, I'm not ready. I mean, that would be absurd. You would think, what's the matter with it, that guy? You know, the season depends on his readiness. The right, yeah, that's true in football, yes. The way the season is going to turn out depends on if he's ready now. Right, right on. And so he was talking actually about the way that he prepared. He prepared through his diet, and you could tell actually too because he was fit, his eyes were shining, his skin was glowing. You could tell that he'd been eating real good because he was ready physically. You could tell that he had been working out in the gym. I mean, his muscles were, were as big as ever. You could tell through um, his uh, responses that he was psychologically ready. He had prepared himself in every way to give the game for the next season and everything that it required. Now, the more you invest into something, the more that you get out of something. Right. Now, how does this translate into Christianity? Because um, the whole thing's gift. Are you ready for this next season? Are you ready for what God wants to bring you into? And if not, get ready. You know. Well, how? We have a um, a book that I wrote. It's called The Bride Makes Herself Ready. Oh, <laughs> shouldn't have asked. And it's about being ready for the bridegroom and for his coming. Because not every, not every believer is going to be the bride, obviously. What? Okay, listen carefully, okay? You got to be real careful with this is just tricky stuff here. Okay, listen. You know, we have a um, a book that I wrote. It's called The Bride Makes Herself Ready. Mm -hmm. And it's about being ready for the bridegroom and for his coming. Because not every, not every believer is going to be the bride. Well, biblically, that's just not true. Every, every true believer in Jesus Christ does make up the bride of Christ. There is no other criterion. Hmm. Obviously, says the bride makes herself ready. And so it's for those whose heart beats after the bridegroom that they don't have any other lovers. They don't have any other affections 
over his uh, affection for him. Oh, so they're perfectly sinless. They don't have any other affections over their affection for Christ, which means they don't sin anymore. They don't, they don't steal. They don't take God's name in vain. They love God perfectly with all of their heart. Uh, they don't lie. They don't uh, commit adultery. They don't covet. They, yeah, you, you see what I'm saying here? Because if you can make the claim that you have no other affections than an affection for Jesus Christ, well, that would mean you have a perfect affection for Jesus Christ, and, well, you just don't sin anymore. Um, and so are you ready for his coming? Do you know what it says that in the Bible that he can come like in a thief in the night? He'll come like a thief in the night in an hour when we don't even expect him? Are we ready? Are we ready to rule and reign with Jesus for all eternity? I was thinking about that the other day. I thought, you know, how I live my life right now really counts for eternity. And what if Jesus came today for a bride, and he's only going to take his bride, not every believer, but every bride. You hearing this? He's not going to come for every believer. He's only going to come for the bride, and the bride makes herself ready. Is this salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, or is this salvation by works? Go with the second one. Everyone who's part of his bride, who has affection for the bridegroom, who has given her heart totally for him, who has passion for him alone, you know, who is really sold out. What if he comes for that bride today and we're not ready? We thought, you know what? I didn't think he was going to come for another 10, 20 years maybe or I didn't even think he was going to come in my lifetime. So I just thought I'd, you know, just give the world, you know, my affections and, you know, give other things my affections. I didn't really care about the bridegroom right now. I was caring more about my flesh. I didn't really care about ruling and reigning with Jesus. Do you know that the bride of the bridegroom rules and reigns with him for all eternity? Are you willing to throw that away for a day of flashy indulgence because you love okay so you you can throw away your salvation you can throw away your entire salvation for a day of fleshy indulgence salvation by grace or salvation by sanctification this isn't by grace this is by works this is salvation based upon what you do this is salvation by keeping the law having perfect love and affection for Christ. Well, the law is summed up as love God and love neighbor. So she's basically, at this point, preaching salvation by keeping the law. Good luck, Patricia. I don't think you're going to make it. When you love him, you know, just think about that for a moment. Because after the fact, there's not another chance. The bride is the bride. And so are you ready? Are you- I, I got to back that up so you can hear it in context without my commentary. It, this is breathtaking. Do you know that the bride of the bridegroom rules and reigns with him for all eternity? Are you willing to throw that away for a day of flashy indulgence because you love the world more than you love him? You know, just think about that for a moment. Because after the fact, there's not another chance. The bride is the bride. And so are you ready? 
Are you ready for greater degrees of glory? Are you ready to jump into your prayer closet and say, Yay, God, I'm here. I'm ready for more. I'm ready. I'm preparing. I'm going to get prayed up. I'm going to read my Bible. Get that word on the inside of me. I'm going to get ready to be your ambassador. I'm going to get ready to minister on your behalf. And that means just giving yourself wholeheartedly to him. Yeah, so that you you can save your bacon. Yeah, you have to give yourself wholeheartedly. Otherwise, your bacon's going to be frying for eternity. Yeah, this is all salvation by works and keeping the law. Are you ready? It's a good- well, yeah, I'm ready because Christ has made me ready. I'm baptized. I, I, I've been given repentance and faith in him as a gift. All of my sins have been washed away. How can I add to the perfect righteousness of Christ? The answer is I can't. So, folks, <clears throat> there you have it. Uh, aside from wackiness from Patricia King, now we've got salvation by keeping the law. Loving Christ with all your heart perfectly. She preaches a different gospel. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result of it, she's deceiving herself and others. And we need to pray that Christ would grant her repentance and the forgiveness of her sins. Because even now, Christ will forgive her heresies. Even now. And so we pray that Christ would bring her to repentance of her false doctrine and her and her stupid false miracles and bring her to the foot of the real cross for her sins to be forgiven and her heresies to be absolved. Hmm. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. (laughs) 
and Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so. And the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, miraculous angelic glory cloud events do not prove anything. The proof of the pudding is in the doctrine. Always in the doctrine. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. If you uh, are not a supporter financially of Fighting for the Faith... um. Uh, please um, uh, amend this uh, this disparity. Here I am, serving you week after week, day after day, bringing you sound biblical doctrine and discernment, and we depend upon your financial gifts in order to continue to bring this program to you. If you do not uh, support us, then please, um, well, strongly consider to uh, repent, change your mind, and become a supporter of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. The way you do so is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. 
gives you a couple of different options. Well, the uh, one says donate, the other says join our crew. The join our crew button, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute six dollars ninety five cents to the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith and pirate Christian radio. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along to the news. From the Christian News website, headline reads, Evangelists say Muslims coming to Christ at a historic rate. Yeah, this is uh, written by Sarah Stiegel, a Christian news uh, correspondent. The, 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 it reads, Christians ministering quietly in the Middle East say Muslims are coming to Christ at an unprecedented pace despite intense persecution of those who leave Islam. Quote, probably in the last 10 years, more Muslims have come to faith in Christ than in the last 15 centuries of Islam, said Tom Doyle, Middle, Middle East Central Asia director for E3 Partners, a Texas-based missions agency. A former pastor, Doyle has been to the Middle East around 80 times and last week returned to the U.S. from a trip to Jerusalem where he said both Muslims and Jews are turning to Christ and turning to Christianity. Earlier this month, more than 200 former Muslims were baptized during a training conference in Europe led by Iran-born evangelist Lazarus Yagnazar. Now, I have no idea what his theology is, but uh, this is an interesting story. Uh, Brenda Ajimayan, oh boy, am I messing these word names up, a former missionary to the Middle East who partners with Yagnazar's 222 Ministries International said that the event was unlike any that she'd seen during her years ministering in Egypt, Lebanon, and Jordan. That many Muslims who converted to Christ in one place boggled my mind because missionaries have worked in in the Arab world and Muslim world generally uh, for years and without much fruit, Ajimayan said. God is at work, apparently, among the Muslims. Ajimayan said that she was told at the conference that the that drug addiction and depression run rampant in many nations, particularly in Iran, where cleric, the cleric-led government has attempted to squash pro-democracy movements. Quote, people are so fed up with the kinds of lives they led, uh, they're turning to Christ even in spite of the very real possibility of persecution and death and imprisonment. Desperation is also a big factor in bringing many Jews to Christ, Doyle said. In the last 20 years, more Jews also have become followers of Jesus than in the last 2,000 years of Christianity, he said. Now, these I can't substantiate these claims, but I can tell you this. I don't have a lot of, I, I, I don't have a lot of contact uh, with uh, people who, uh, you know, I have some contact with people who are missionaries, but I don't have any contact personally myself with Muslims in the Middle East. And so in hearing these kind of reports makes me go, hmm. Islam, yeah, y- y'all worried about the uh, the the nine eleven mosque, the the ground so called ground zero mosque. Preach the gospel, give him Christ and him crucified for our sins. Yeah, it's through the preaching of the gospel that that's that's our like greatest weapon, by the way, because that's what God the Holy Spirit uses to regenerate dead, lost sinners. Are Muslims any more sinners than any other sinner on the planet? Are are their hearts any more dead than the dead hearts of people out there who, are, well, you know, who aren't Muslims? 
No. They are enslaved and dead in trespasses and sins just as much as anybody else. And through the preaching of the gospel, Christ sets people free, grants them repentance and the forgiveness of sins, takes them from the, 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 the dominion of darkness into his blessed kingdom. Muslims are not more lost than anybody else. Uh, they're not more lost than a pagan. They're not more lost than an atheist. Muslims are not more lost than anybody. They're just lost. Shine the light of Christ and him crucified for our sins. I, I read this report, and I want to believe it. Now, I don't know if I should believe it all. But how do we substantiate this? But if somebody who's a missionary who's been there and, and spent years working at that track is saying something's happening, something's giving, that all of a sudden that... God is granting repentance and the forgiveness of sins to Muslims? Hmm. Yeah. Islam can't stand up against the gospel. There's just no way. No way at all. And they're not more dead than anybody else. They're just dead. That's it. So anyway, I just wanted to pass that along. Let me, you know, we might be able to get to everything today. <laughs> I'm just blowing through all of these different stories. This was, uh, I found this on a website, just an emergent um, person that I follow on Twitter sent out the link to this, and I thought, oh, good night. Listen to this, listen, listen to this paragraph. Uh, this is um, describing something that took place on Saturday, October 17, 2009, at the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities at Birkbeck University of London. The uh, the name of the event is called Atheism in Christianity. Quote, only an atheist can be a good Christian. Only a Christian can be a good atheist. Hmm. How is that possible when Scripture says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God? That's what atheism says, there's no God. So how can a Christian be a good atheist when Jesus Christ claims to be the God of, of the Jews in human flesh? doesn't make any sense. This is just complete irrationalism. Worth passing along, though. Let me read. In the long, unavailable quote, Atheism in Christianity, it's the name of a book, by Ernst Bloch, uh, provides an original historical examination of Christianity in an attempt to find its social roots. He pursues a detailed study of the Bible and its long-standing fascination for, quote, ordinary and unimportant people. In the Bible stories, promise of utopia and their antagonism to authority, Bloch locates the appeal to the oppressed, the desire to transcend without transcendence. Through a lyrical yet close and nuanced analysis, he explores the tensions within the text that promote atheism against the authoritarian and metaphysical theism imposed on it by its priest interpreter. So, yeah, see, Christianity is actually an atheistic religion, and theism was imposed by authoritarian Christian priests. At the Bible's heart, he finds a heretical core and claims paradoxically that a good Christian must necessarily be an atheist. That's just the dumbest thing. I, the, the, folks, this is what happens when uh, when liberalism takes over. Yeah, it completely... You see, liberalism isn't content with destroying the authority of Scripture. No, 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 no. That's just the first big hurdle to overcome. Once the, the authority of God's word has been completely deconstructed, then they go after truth itself. Yeah, it's, yeah, so that apparently now you can be a Christian and an atheist at the same time. Christian atheism. You know, this doesn't sound all that unique, though. I mean, wasn't it during the 60s that J.J. Altizer's, 
out there at uh, Emory University uh, in uh, Georgia was uh, talking about God is dead and he called himself a Christian atheist. Yep. Yeah, they go, those liberals, they just go after all kinds. They don't want to be bound by any truth. By the way, I need to reannounce the fact that I, you know, since I'm embracing this irrationalism, that apparently uh, it's, it's safe to say that I am an underweight fat man. So I just want to let you all know that. So there. Okay, BioLagos. Boy, I'm telling you, these folks are just up to no good. Um, Carl Giberson, Dr. Carl Giberson of um, BioLagos, published a piece in the Huffington Post over the weekend, How Darwinian, How Darwin Sustains My Baptist Search for Truth. And this is a hit piece against Albert Muller. Um, Dr. Giberson writes, he says, My sainted mother, who passed away this year, raised me to value the truth. Oh, really? Okay. My family members were fundamentalist Baptists attending a church in rural New Brunswick, Canada, pastored by my father. The reason I am no longer a fundamentalist is precisely because I was taught to value the truth. And there are some fundamentalist beliefs that I just don't think are true anymore. Mm-hmm. For, for the earth, for example, is not 10,000 years old. I have naively assumed until recently that respect for the truth is deep in the DNA of Baptists. I have assumed that when a Baptist speaks or writes, they do their best to be truthful. I am thus quite alarmed that Americans, America's leading Baptist, Al Mohler, widely read author, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and according to Time magazine, the, quote, reigning intellectual of the evangelical movement in the U.S., does not seem to care about the truth and seems quite content to simply make stuff up when it serves his purpose. Yeah, again, the, the name of the piece was How Darwin Sustains My Baptist Search for Truth. And in reality, that's just a, a it's, it's, it, this should have been named Why Al Mohler is a Gunky Head. Uh, anyway, we continue. So about two months ago, Al Mohler spoke to a group of leading fundamentalists at a prestigious venue. His topic was why Christians must believe that the earth is just a few thousand years old. A transcription of his talk is available here. They have a link to his transcript. I think in this talk, Al Mohler made false statements about Darwin. Um, what? <laughs> Huh? Now, you're sitting there going, okay, um, that's just his opening argument, right? No. Apparently, this entire piece is written because Al Mohler doesn't care about the truth, and Al Mohler has made false statements about Darwin. Yeah, Dr. Um, Giberson here um, from the Biologos Foundation uh, didn't really address a single one of Al Mohler's theological arguments from the Bible. Not one. Didn't touch a single one of them. Instead, the thing he's taking issue with, get this, Al Mohler has made false statements about Darwin. It's a sad day here in Christianity. I just, I don't know what to say. What am I supposed to do? Al, Al Mohler has made false statements about Darwin. That's the best that you have? You're going to waste everyone's time over there at the Huffington Post raking Al Mohler over the coals because he apparently made false statements about Darwin. Well, what were these false statements? So let me continue reading here. So 
Uh, Mueller made false statements about Darwin. He apparently wanted to undermine evolution by suggesting that it was invented to prop up Darwin's worldview rather than developed to explain observations in the natural world. Yeah, let me just... Really, have we ever in the natural world observed one species turning into another? Where, where have we observed that? We've we've observed small changes within species. I mean, if you want an example of that, look at dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I my wife has a dog. My dog died. We had to put her down. That was Cookie. Cookie looked a lot like me. Fat. Anyway, Cookie was a big black Labrador, and well, we own, we own another dog, and his name is Max. And Max is, well, they call him a Westie Poo. He's part West Highland Terrier and part Poodle. And um, he's a defective breed, is this the best way I can put it. But Max looks nothing like Cookie. No, no, did, well, Cookie's dead. But uh, Max looks, looked, well, Cookie looked nothing like Max. And, um, and so, I mean, Max is small and white. Cookie was built like a fire plug and um, was black. Um, yeah, Cookie was big. He was small. Um, he's small. Cookie made big messes in the backyard. Max, I mean, could probably use a litter box. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what have we observed here? They're both from the same species. Okay. They're both canines. Okay. And technically they could have bred. Okay. That being the case, I mean, um, we've never witnessed canines turning into birds. So we've never witnessed, uh, felines turning into, um, goats. Nope. That just, just doesn't happen. Yeah, God has made things according to their kind, according to the species. So, yeah, Darwin never did observe um, species change. He 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 observed changes, you know, in, within species, but never witnessed species changing into something else. That that's never been witnessed, and there is no evidence for that at all. But I, I digress. I mean, I'm just a theologian. What do I know? <sighs> anyway, so let's see here. So Al Mohler lied. He says he said. He, uh, okay, according to uh, Giberson, Moeller said, quote, Darwin did not embark upon the Beagle having no preconceptions of what exactly he was looking for or having no theory of how life emerged in all of its diversity, uh, fecundity, and specialization. Darwin left on his expedition to prove the theory of evolution. Because Darwin was constantly journaling, keeping careful notebooks, and writing letters, historians have established beyond all doubt that Muller's su- summary is simply false. To be fair, an alarming number of fundamentalists have made similar claims. John Ankerberg and John Weldon make essentially the same false claims in their book, Darwin's Leap of Faith, Exposing the False Religion of Evolution. Of course, Muller may simply have made a mistake. He is, after all, a theologian and not a historian. He could have gotten his, his uh, this wrong idea from any number of his fellow anti-Darwinians. However, I don't think so. In his address, he read from my book, Saving Darwin, in which I took some pains to correct the all-too-common misperception that, of Darwin that he presented. So unless he was just cherry-picking ideas from my book that he wanted to assault, he should have known better. <clears throat> uh, Dr. Giberson, maybe Al Mohler read your book and he disagreed with what you were saying. Because maybe you're wrong. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a bunch to do. So Dr. Gibson, by the way, goes on. He's just complaining about how Mueller has mischaracterized Darwin and Darwin has been besmirched. And this is a terrible crime against Darwin that I mean, and he never touches a single single thing that Al Mueller brought up. Doesn't even I mean, folks, this is a red herring at best and is an ad hominem at worst. Not only that, um, yeah, um, Phil Johnson from the Pyromaniacs blog has uh, written a response, a retort from uh, the August 23rd uh, uh, post at uh, teampyro.blogspot.com. Uh, the headline reads, Evangelicals and Atheists Together. Biologos takes their complaint against Al Mueller to the HuffPo, the Huffington Post. Phil Johnson writes, he says, last month, several several regular contributors over at the BioLogos blog wrote a series of posts exploring the question, how should BioLogos respond to Dr. Albert Mueller's critique? (laughs) Because Dr. Mueller gave a breathtakingly wonderful, in-depth, biblical, theological workshop, for lack of a better way of putting it, on the case for a young earth from the scriptures and from Christ's authority itself. It was just fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just can't say enough good about it. So the, the folks over the, at Biologos who are trying to syncretistically meld evolution and Christianity, and that's just a fruitless endeavor, folks. That I mean, seriously, all that ends up doing is under uh, undermining our, the, uh, uh, the biblical authority. And, again, evolution, house of cards. It is not hard to overthrow. And there's a whole truckload of scientists who aren't even creationists or intelligent designers out there who are saying uh, Darwinian evolution, it, it's just not provable. It hasn't, it, it, the sci- when applied, the scientific method is applied to it, the whole thing crumbles because science depends upon observation and we've never observed anything like this. And when people actually conduct experiments to, you know, to see if this thing can, if Darwinian evolution can hold up to true scientific scrutiny and testing, the whole thing blows up in their face. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's see here. Uh, so the they, let me continue reading. Uh, Phil Johnson continues. He says that question was prompted by Al Mohler's June 19th message entitled "Why Does the Universe Look So Old?" At this year's Orlando Ligonier Conference, Dr. Mohler took a position that is at odds with the central canon, the Biologos Credo. Biologos most certainly needed to respond. The question was how. Evidently, the gentlemen at Biologos have finally settled on their best strategy. For replying to Dr. Albert Mueller, published something at the Huffington Post accusing Dr. Mueller of dishonesty. To paraphrase one of my Facebook friends, even if they really do believe the abuse of ad hominem argument they are making against Al Mueller, that's an interesting strategy. Let's air our differences on at this bastion of secular humanism and we'll invite some of the giants of discernment over the Huff Post to sort it out for us in their com box. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Carl Giberson, vice president of Biologos, wrote the Huffington Post piece. Uh, the case he makes against Dr. Moeller is basically one point. Here it is. In his Legionnaire lecture, Dr. Moeller claimed that Charles Darwin had a pretty good idea of what kind of evidence he was looking for before he ever boarded the Beagle. He was already sympathetic to evolutionary theory, and he was already hostile to biblical authority. Not so, Dr. Giberson says. Darwin was a devout Christian and a creationist when he, set, when he first set foot on the Beagle. Really? 
can Dr. Giberson really make that claim with a straight face that Darwin was a devout Christian and a creationist when he set first when he first set foot on the Beagle? Giberson claims Darwin's very first doubts about the reliability of Scripture as history came as he collected his samples and observed and analyzed the biological evidence. Dr. Giberson evidently would have us believe Darwin was a typical evangelical until an honest inquiry into the science, scientific evidence forced him to take a more enlightened position. I'm admittedly no Darwinian scholar, but I do know for a fact the only version of Christianity he ever adhered to was by no means evangelical. This is talking about Darwin. Uh, Darwin was a product of that Unitarian intellectualism that dominated the established church in Georgian times. According to an 1887 article by Robert Schindler, published in Charles Spurgeon's magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, quote, If anyone wishes to know where the tadpole of Darwinianism was hatched, we could point him to the pew of the old chapel in High Street, Shrewsbury, where Mr. Darwin, his father, and we believe his father's father, received their religious training. The chapel was built for Mr. Talents, an ejected minister, i.e., a Puritan who dissented from the established church order, but for very many years full-blown Socinianism has been taught there. Furthermore, I'm no longer quoting uh, Robert Schindler here. Now it's Phil Johnson writing. He says, furthermore, Darwin was enthralled with natural theology and like biologos held the truth claims of Scripture to be less reliable and less authoritative than, quote, scientific proofs. That was that was what prompted his interest in science to begin with. And as Dr. Giberson himself notes in an earlier open letter to Dr. Moeller, Darwin was a devotee of William Paley. Perhaps the most succinct summary of William Paley's religious conviction comes to us from Sir Leslie Stephen, a younger contemporary of Paley's. Stephen was a respected English author and an Anglican clergyman. He described William Paley as a Socinian in all but name. Given Biologus' own theological trajectory, I'm thinking particularly of their dismissive attitude towards key doctrines like biblical authority and original sin. They may not recognize Socinianism or its close cousins Unitarianism, Deism, and theological liberalism as anti-Christian worldviews, but Dr. Moeller certainly understands that those ideas are hostile to Scripture and antithetical to every major stream of, of the historic Christian faith. In other words, Dr. Moeller undoubtedly disagrees with Dr. Giberson's assessment of Darwin. As difficult as this may be for Dr. Giberson to receive and as hurtful as it may be to his academic ego, Dr. Moeller no doubt found Dr. Giberson's book, Saving Darwin, How to Be a Christian and Believe in Evolution, as unpersuasive. But as far as Dr. Giberson is concerned, the only possible explanation for Dr. Moeller's statements about Darwin is that Moeller simply doesn't care about the truth. Giberson insists Dr. Muller is a deliberate, cold-hearted, and shameless liar. I'm not exaggerating. Giberson's loaded his Huffington Post article with just about every accusation and insult space, uh, insult space would allow. Short of making Muller out to be a felon, Giberson alleges that Muller does not seem to care about the truth and seems quite content to simply make stuff up where it serves his purpose. Perhaps Muller's only real encounter with saving Darwin wasn't in... Instruction to an assistant to find something in Giberson's book that I can ridicule in my speech. 
Muller, perhaps, is being a faith-fibber, something I have been guilty of, although not on this scale. I am disappointed to realize that uh, skeptic Michael Shermer, who repudiated his faith, has more respect for the truth than Al Muller, who views himself as the caretaker of, of a faith that I share. Really? Because in the very next sentence, Giberson goes on to assert that religious belief is complex and full of mystery, paradox, and contradiction. Uh, this is tantamount to saying faith is an absurdity. I, I'm fairly confident Dr. Muller would not view himself as a caretaker of that sort of faith. It's not true faith at all. It's not true faith at all by any biblical standard, a classical existential and neo-orthodox nonsense. But anyway, let me get to the thing that chafes me most about Biologus' answer to their own question. How should Biologus respond to Dr. Muller's critique? My answer would have been address the biblical and theological points he made. Dr. Muller gave several clear doctrinal arguments to show why the peculiar brand of cosmological deism being touted by the Biologos crew is incompatible with sound doctrine and hostile to a high view of Scripture. Their campaign is destructive to foundational doctrines of the Christian faith, starting with the authority of Scripture and the doctrine of original sin. The theological case Dr. Muller made was compelling. Until Biologos responds to it, I'll stand by what I've said all along. They cannot be serious when they claim they're interested in bringing science and faith together. Indeed, they are steering people into the same spiritual blind alley that ultimately caused Darwin to abandon theism altogether. And the skeptical blogosphere is full of spiritual casualties who are living and dying illustrations of what happens when half-hearted faith hits that dead end. Great retort, uh, Phil Johnson. Good stuff there. And but, yeah, to, just to sum it up, I mean, the entire Huffington Post article, I, you go to the Huffington Post and type in their search box, how Darwin sustains my Baptist search for truth, and you'll see this hit piece against Al Mohler. And the big, the big sin that he committed was claiming that Darwin, uh, you know, wasn't completely unbiased and was and knew what he was looking for, the evidence that he was looking for. Giberson tries to paint Darwin as an evangelical Christian before he uh, got onto the beagle. Nothing could be further from the truth. He was basically the equivalent of a theological liberal, a Unitarian, far from somebody who adheres to the historic Christian faith. And I think Phil Johnson did a fantastic job of decimating that argument. Hmm. Yeah, the Biologos crew, bad news. Bad news indeed. In fact, I mean, bordering on complete dishonesty at this point. Hit pieces against Al Mohler, you're going to have to do better than that. Why don't you, Dr. Giberson, address the arguments that Dr. Mohler brought up? Because I don't think you can. Because Dr. Mohler gave a compelling biblical case for a young earth, and I don't think you have a chance of overturning it. All right, we're up on our second break. When we get back, uh, sermon review time, we're going to be reviewing a sermon uh, based on the movie Braveheart. <clears throat> yeah, because I'm so relevant. That's why we're doing it, so... Yeah. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Well, yeah, I've been dying to do a sermon on the movie Braveheart. I mean, ever since I first saw Braveheart and donned blue war paint, I've always wanted to hear a sermon on Braveheart because, you know, it just brings out the manliness in me. It makes me want to don a kilt, grab a sword, and not bathe for about a month or two. Let's cue up the music here. The good, the bad, the ugly. (laughs) We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Uh, The sermon today comes to us via The Verve in um, Las Vegas, Nevada. The name of the sermon is I Want a Movie Life, Braveheart. Now as you listen to this sermon, modern day parable, I'm sorry, you'll hear him explain why he is... Um, preaching on movies, and uh, we'll biblically correct that. I mean, because here's the deal. It's a myth. Uh, The guys in the seeker-driven movement uh, have bought into a lie, a myth, that the reason why Jesus told parables is so that everybody can easily understand all these wonderful tips and life strategies that he's giving uh, to make their lives better. More exciting, more 
adventurous. <laughs> I wish I was making that up. Oh, man. You know, is it, do you find it ironic um, that I, I use movie music when I introduce my sermon reviews? Yeah. Um, maybe I'm hypocritical. Anyway, the if you want... <laughs> oh, man. The pastor preaching this sermon. I don't know who it is. Uh, by the way, the verb, by the way, is on Dean Martin Drive. Yeah, Dean Martin Drive in um, Las Vegas, Nevada. The, the, uh, the pastor is Vince... Antonucci, Vince Antonucci. I, I just we'll call him Vince. Anyway, with that, we're going to dive into the sermon and uh, let's kill the music. So, without any further ado, here is "I Want a Movie Life," a movie, a sermon based upon the movie Braveheart by Anthony, whatever. V Sorry, Vince Antonucci. Here, here we go. <laughs> Hey, you're tuned in to the Verve Podcast, live from the heart of Las Vegas, Nevada. Thanks for listening, and viva the Verve. Every time I hear that, viva, viva the Verve. We're really excited. Today we're starting a brand new series called I Want a Movie Life. And, and you know, most of us love movies. There's, there's something in us that's drawn to movies. And I think it's because we want what we see on that screen. You know, the, the sense of adventure some movies have or, or the romance or, or just the story, a story that has, like, meaning and a, a plot that's going somewhere. We want that. And in this series, I think we might find out just a little bit of how we can get closer to that in our lives, that adventure and that. Wow. Yeah, see, we're right out of the chute. Boy, we're, boom, we're right in the middle of heresy. <laughs> yeah, because, you know. We're going to preach about movies because people want that kind of life of adventure. And hopefully by the end of the sermon, you're going to know how to experience them. Get closer to that yourself because that's apparently what Jesus died on the cross for. So that you can have a adventurous movie lifestyle. Romance. It's interesting. If you ever say life of Jesus, he taught through using everyday common things that everybody was familiar with. And I think if Jesus taught today, he would probably use movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so by the way, this was the thing I was going to say I was going to correct. If you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 13. That's right, Matthew chapter 13. The gospel according to uh, Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> We're going to uh, let Jesus explain for himself why he preaches in parables. Is the reason why Jesus preaches in parables so that everybody can get, uh, oh, wow, I can totally relate to that story, and now I can mine it for the tips and tricks on how to have an adventurous lifestyle. Was the reason why Jesus used parables so that everybody would get it? Well, let's find out. Matthew chapter 13, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat, sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, <clears throat> quote, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along a path. The birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. 
But when the sun arose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they were withered. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the ground, on the good soil, and it produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And do you think everyone was going, oh, wow, look how contextual I, look at Jesus. He's engaging in contextualization. He's being missional. Uh, no. Um, because the disciples, yeah, who, by the way, grew up in this culture, knew a whole lot of stuff about farming, even though they were fishermen. They, 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 they knew the farmers. They knew how their trade worked. And uh, they didn't get it. They're just sitting there going, huh? That's the best. That you, what does that mean? All right. So went out and th- threw some seeds everywhere. Bad. That's a stupid farmer throwing seeds everywhere. He threw seeds on a path, threw seeds on bad soil, rocky soil, good soil. What a completely dumb farmer. Uh, this ain't making any sense, Jesus. And Jesus ends off this missional contextual parable with the ever so clear words. He who has ears, let him hear. So the disciples came to Jesus and said to him, why are you speaking to them in parables? You can you, the subtext is here. Huh? Can you can you make things a little clearer, Jesus? So he answered them. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he who has an abundance from uh, the one who has not, uh, 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 but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So this is why I speak to them in parables, because being see- because seeing, they, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Yeah, see, Jesus explained, because you know, the disciples were going, why are you talking in parables? It's, you might as well be speaking in riddles. Jesus wasn't trying to be missional here. Okay. Indeed, Jesus says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It says, you will indeed hear, but you will never understand. You will indeed see, but you will never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed them lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So hear then the parable of the sower. Yet, by the way, the disciples didn't get it, so Jesus has to explain it to them. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Uh, this is what is sown along the path. Uh, as for the, uh, what's sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, and, but he endures for a while, and then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and immediately he falls away. As for the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. Uh, But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, they they choke out the word, and and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundred 
fold and another 60 and another 30. So you think Jesus was telling parables in order to be contextual, to be missional? No. According to him, he was telling parables so that people wouldn't understand, so that they would be hearing but never understanding, seeing but never perceiving. So the whole seeker-driven um, methodology here as to why they want to preach on movies is completely shot down if you would just read the Bible. We continue. And so we're going to kind of follow his example in doing that. Uh, in the future, I think we'll do this series every year probably. And in the future, we'll use like current movies. But we Oh, goody, I have more material for next year. We thought to kind of kick it off the series, we would do a series worth of like classics movies from the past i don't know 10 years that we've mostly all seen and know and they're very familiar to us and today we're starting with the movie brave heart any brave heart fans in here yeah a lot of you okay so uh, here's the deal we want to show like a scene from the movie maybe it's been a while since you've seen it maybe some of you have never seen it but we weren't sure like of all the legalities of showing a scene from the movie and i was like ah, we can't do it but then i thought wait a second we've got this incredible creative team and so i asked them i said could you like I'm not sure what's funny yet, but I asked them, I said, could you recreate a scene from the movie? But it needs to be like, I mean, people need to feel Braveheart. It needs to be dead on. And they said, we could totally do that. I have not seen it yet, but I'm excited. They, they say that they got this clip from the movie. So that, we'll watch. All right. So check this out. All right, guys. Here's the deal. We're wanting to show the scene from Braveheart, but we just don't have the kind of budget to pay the copyright permissions to actually show it. So we're going to have to recreate it so everybody knows what we're talking about. Well, do we have the budget to do this thing right? Oh, we've got the budget. Well, I know I've got the acting skills. <laughs> so, uh, what scene are we going to do? Well, I mean, what scene do you think? Uh-huh. Uh, the horse. Go with it. Hey, go with it. Go with it. Go with it. Hold up. Who's going to be the horse? Oh, hold up. is free men and free men you are what will you do with your freedom freedom peace freedom 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 you got to give for what you take freedom put on the mask painting you me day I just want everyone to know they are apparently listening to exactly how Jesus would be preaching today. You know, using a movie as a, as a parable. That's what these men are doing. So this is a Jesus sermon. And you will leave for a little while. Wrong. Accent. Uh, and uh, and, and, and uh, dying in your beds many years from now. You, <sighs> nope. Yeah. But they'll never take our freedom? 
bravo. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus would have done. I'm certain of it. is written by those who hung heroes. Thus begins the story of Braveheart. A great story, not entirely a true story, but a great story. A story whose theme is every man dies. Not every man truly lives. Uh, Because that's in the Bible. Um, Proverbs chapter 3697 verse 2022. The story focuses on a man named William Wallace from Scotland. Uh, Wallace's father died when he was very young in a battle of war. And then Wallace grew up, he fell in love, got married. But shortly thereafter, his wife was killed by uh, English soldiers who represented the country that oppressed Scotland at the time. And thus began William Wallace's quest to lead his people for freedom from England. There are some major battle scenes in the movie with lots of gore and bloodshed. And and back then they didn't have guns. And so both sides would just kind of line up staring at each other, holding sticks and swords, just anxiously waiting to engage in the battle. But William Wallace stood in the front and he inspired his people to fight for freedom. There's one famous scene that we just saw very poorly depicted. <laughs> Not happy. Uh, where, where William Wallace says, free men. He says, free men, what will you do with your freedom? And there's this one guy who says, we'll live. And he says, I, says, fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. But dying in your beds many years from now, would you trade all your days from this day to that For one chance, just one chance to come back to this day and tell our enemies that they may. He's quoting the movie like it's scripture. I mean, you can tell he's really into this. I, I, I'd lie if I was feel said I was feeling goosebumps. But I mean, I mean, it's almost goosebump worthy. May take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. It's the whole thing. It's just inspired by this quest for freedom. Because living without freedom is not really living. And every man dies, but not every man truly lives. The, the character of William Wallace and the cause for which he fights are even able to win over some who have acted as his enemies. In fact, there's one man who has betrayed Wallace who later in the movie says, men... I do want you to know that William Wallace appears nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. Not even mentioned once. You don't believe me? Look it up on a computerized Bible. Type in William Wallace. You will not find him there. If you have a concordance, you know, old school, if you're, you need a concordance, look up William Wallace. He will not appear in the Bible anywhere. Fight for him for something I've never had. I want to believe as he does. I will never be on the wrong side again. In the end, uh, William Wallace is executed for his cause. 
And the crowd that surrounds the execution at first is, is very happy and they cheer. And, and they're happy because they, they just don't understand. But soon the, the gore of the method of execution hushes the crowd. And then with his very last breath, William Wallace screams his final word. He says, freedom! Because... Oh, and- I'm sure he'll take advantage of this direct allusion to Christ, you know, William Wallace being a Christ figure. I'm sure he'll pick up the gospel and and tell us about the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. I'm sure of it. Because it's all about this quest for freedom. He wants to inspire his people that his death might be a martyr's death, that, that they would continue the fight for freedom because living without freedom, it's not really living. And every man dies, but not every man truly lives. History is written by those who hung heroes. The story of the Bible, a true story, a great story, uh, focuses on this man, Jesus Christ. And the theme of the Bible is that every man dies, but not every man truly lives. Jesus really lived. He had lived for. I, 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 what? <laughs> Did they teach this uh, at uh, Purpose Driven Seminary? Hang on a second. Uh, Purpose Driven folks don't have seminaries. Um, yeah, scratch that. I, where do they teach this stuff? For all eternity, in fact, in heaven with his father. But Jesus came down to earth to live as a man. And the reason he did was to win freedom for his people. Hey, 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 we got some gospel here. This is gospel to win freedom. Yeah, that's biblically you can make a good case here. Yes. Because living without freedom is not really living. Uh, freedom from what, Vince? Freedom from what? And, and every man dies, but not every man truly lives. And so Jesus inspired people to imagine what it might look like to live as free men. (laughs) And there I was hoping, you know, that he was steering us toward the biblical gospel, freedom from sin, death, and the devil set free from the consequences of our sin, the wrath of God and hell. But Jesus inspired people by Inspiring them to dream what it would be like to live a life of freedom. It's just, I don't get it. (sighs) Yeah, see, this is what happens when you don't actually let the Bible tell you what to preach. Instead, you think that you know better than God, so you invent your own stuff. There's this one inspiring speech that Jesus gives where he said... One inspiring speech. Jesus, the inspiring motivational speaker. I'm here to inspire you, Jesus shouted to the masses. What Bible are you reading, Vince? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I just died. This is just crazy. You know, Jesus didn't engage in battles and bloodshed. Instead, his was a war of love. 
He, he came not to win the other side, not through uh, power and force, but instead through mercy and grace. He was this inspiring leader who... Can you explain mercy and grace and why we need it? Who talked about freedom, who dared people to imagine being truly free. No, Jesus, where, which sermon can you point to where Jesus dared people to imagine what it'd be like to be truly free? Uh, the Jesus he's preaching about is, well, not real. Um, this is, uh, <laughs> I hate to say it, this is a sermon based upon a true story, but is not really a true story. Jesus' character and the cause for which he fought were even able to win over some who had acted as his enemies. In fact, there's this one man who had acted as his enemy who later said of Jesus, he said, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose- Because he was so inspiring. Jesus challenged me to imagine what it was like to live free. Freedom! Or, yo, Adrian, I did it! Wait, wrong movie. For whose sake I have lost all things. In the end, Jesus dies a, a death for the cause for which he fights. But uh, the crowd... Uh, what was he fighting for? What was the cause? Can you explain any of that for me? I mean, so we got Jesus dying kind of like William Wallace, but I know more about why William Wallace died than I do about why Jesus died at this point in the sermon. Can you clear a few biblical loose ends up for me here? Tie them down, if you would. Out. Uh, around him is actually happy. They're cheering his death because they don't, they, they just don't understand. But then they're hushed. Don't understand what? By just the gore of the method of execution. And with his last breath, Jesus shouts his final words. He says, it is finished. Congratulations, you successfully connected the Christ figure in the movie Braveheart to Jesus. At what what was finished? Um, Jesus was announcing it. It's finished. It's done. What was done? What was finished? What on earth was he talking about? Can you clear some of that up for us, please, Vince? You see, Jesus' death was not a martyr's death. It wasn't. He didn't die in hopes that people would continue to fight for freedom. No, Jesus died to win people their freedom. And with his death, it was finished. It freedom from what? It was over. Who had enslaved us? Jesus had won. Uh, who did he b- defeat? Because every man dies, but not every man truly lives. So we have this victory over something we're not sure what to set us free from something that we have no idea what it is that apparently was was enslaving us. But Jesus finished it, whatever it was, but we don't. What did he accomplish? Who did he defeat? Who was the victory won over? How does it set us free and from what or whom or whatever does it set us free from? But one man died that everyone might truly live. I, that's wow that's great so that i could live what does that mean and so here's the question of the day for you are you truly living 
I am. <laughs> you may actually, if you hear um, flame sounds, like you, you know, um, if it sounds like something just you know combusted, that's me actually spontaneously combusting. If if you hear that happen, uh, please um, dial emergency services and have them send a fire truck to my home. Uh, well, actually, have them send it to the PCR studios. Um, because, um, the, the, I've burst into flames and, um, am in the process of destroying pirate Christian radio with the flames that I burst into. This is just crazy. Really deep down, you know, are you truly living? And I would tell you that if you're not free, you're not really living free from what? Now, now, you might be thinking, well, of course we're free. What are you talking about? We live in America. It's democ- we're, we're free. We're not slaves. What do you mean? And, yeah, on the surface, that's certainly true. But I think if you probe deeper, maybe you'd come up with a different answer. Because I think if you live without freedom, you're not really living. And I think that we are slaves. I think most of us are slaves to our fear. <laughs> what? <laughs> So Jesus came to set us free from our fear that was enslaving us. Are you just making this stuff up? Do you not know how to read? Uh, no, I, this, is a, this is a valid question at this point. Is this pastor actually illiterate? You're thinking, well, Chris, that's awful, awful harsh of you to ask. Yeah, I, I understand that. I'm not politically correct. I'm a pirate, remember? Um, uh, no, the question stands. Does this guy actually know how to read? I mean, because, you know, the Bible actually does tell us what we were set free from. Yeah, let me, let me give you an example. Um, if you have your Bibles, oh, flip on over to Romans chapter 5 and 6. I'm going to read the like the tail end of chapter 5, and I'm going to read the opening to chapter 6. And I just kind of make my point here. The, you know, if you're going to talk about slavery and being set free... There's all kinds of stuff that we can talk about here uh, from the Bible. I mean, we don't have to, like, just invent things, uh, you know, make things up. And uh, because if he knew how to read, then all he would have to do is, well, you know, open the Bible and start reading. Uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 15. I read. For the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many tras- trespasses brought justification, or basically a, a not guilty verdict. It's a forensic declaring of you not being guilty. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of the righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, 
what's reigning sin, uh, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might abound or increase? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin now if we have died with christ we believe that we will also live with him we know that christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to god so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to god in christ Yeah, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members as God to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you're under grace. What then? Are are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Well, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to life? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Why? I I don't have a lot of hope. Maybe, maybe Vince will get there. But apparently we need to be set free from fear. Yeah. Jesus, it is finished. You're set free. You you, you have freedom now from fear. (sighs) And I think if you look carefully at yourself, at your own life, you would see that, that your life is dominated by maybe two fears. The fear that there's no life in this life. And the fear that there's no life after this life. And if you live with those fears, you are... Yeah, I think a lot of people have fear that there is life after this life. And because the, the, the law of God is written on our hearts, a bunch of people are sitting there going, man, I am... I am if, man, if there is a God and there's life after life, man, I'm going to hell. Just saying. Not truly living. And every man dies, but not every man truly lives. So the first fear I think that dominates a lot of our lives is this fear that, that there's no life to be had in this life. That you go through life and really there's no life. And we started talking about this last week if you were here, right? This idea that, that we have this, this nagging sensation that is life meaningless and there's got to be more than life than this. And, and we get in this, this wheel in the rat cage, right? We, we just keep doing the same old things. We get up at the same old time and turn off the same old alarm clock. We walk into the same old bathroom. We, we look at the same old face in the same old mirror. We brush our same old teeth. We go down the same old kitchen. We pour a, a bowl of the same old cereal into the same old bowl and eat it with the same old spoon. We get in the same old car and go to the same old job. We sit at the same old desk and do the same old things. We get back in the same old car. We go back. Oh, I see. So Jesus 
came to set us free from the living dead. You know, going to work and having to survive by the sweat of your brow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what you... He's going to give you adventure instead. <laughs> free you from the cubicle. Yes, you see Jesus with blue paint on his face coming through the cubicles and setting the captives free. <sighs> Back to the same old house, the same old route we always take. We walk in and we hug the same old kids. We sit down to the, the same old dinner. We go in the living room and sit on the same old couch, watch the same old TV. We get in the same old bed. We ask our wife the same old question. She gives us the same old answer. <laughs> you roll over, set the same old alarm clock so you can get up at the same old time tomorrow and do the same old thing all over again. And you have enough of that same old. At some point, you have to wonder, is this really life? Did I fall into some sort of rut that's making me miss out on life? There's got to be more to life than this. And if you live with that fear that, that I'm stuck in a rut and I'm missing out in life, you are not really living. But I want to tell you this morning. So never fear. Jesus died on the cross so that you can really live. He's come to set you free from the routine with blue paint and freedom. That Jesus' death takes away the fear that there's no life in this life. He did not just say that. Well, we're dealing with a false gospel here. Yeah, let me uh, give the biblical admonition here to those who are tempted to preach a gospel contrary to the biblical gospel. Galatians chapter 1 uh, has some sobering uh, warning here. Um, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Galatian churches who had abandoned... Excuse me, had abandoned the biblical gospel and uh, the, the gospel that he was he received from Jesus Christ himself, which the apostles received from Jesus. They have abandoned that and started, well, mixing it with other things. <clears throat> the the apostle Paul writes, "I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a <clears throat> different gospel." Not that there is such a thing, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, that would be, so if the Apostle Paul or an angel from heaven were to appear to you and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that they preached, let him be accursed, damned, anathema. Now, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. What is the biblical gospel? We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Bible defines these things. We don't have to make anything up. I Listen, this is going to sound terrible, but um, I'm the most uncreative person out there. Uh, when it comes to theology, pff, yep, my goal is to not have a single original innovative thought. Yeah, <laughs> I don't get to speculate on these things. And originality, God doesn't give originality points. In fact, he condemns and damns those who come up with their own original thinking when it comes to these things because he's revealed them his revelation supersedes all of our thinking and revelation so the bible gets to define what the gospel is first corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 now i would remind you brothers of the gospel that i preached to you what's paul going to remind them of oh yeah the gospel that he preached and the gospel he preached to the corinthian church was the same gospel he preached to the churches in galatia now the, the gospel i preached to you which you received 
the gospel in which you stand, and the gospel by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, primary, primary, first importance, root stuff here, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Yeah, that's the, the gospel in a nutshell. So the gospel is Christ died for our sins. Now, let me back up the tape here and uh, see if um, the gospel that the Apostle Paul received and preached and held people accountable to is the gospel that you're hearing here from Vince Antonucci from Viva La Verve in Las Vegas. Here we go. That's making me miss out on life. There's got to be more to life than this. And if you live with that fear that, that I am stuck in a rut and I am missing out on life, you are not really living. But I want to tell you this morning that Jesus' death takes away the fear that there's no life in this life. Where does the Bible say that? Jesus' death takes away the fear that there's no life in this life. And I'll... Jesus said, if you know, when you know, to daily humble yourself, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, basically act as if you're a walking dead man and follow him. This, Jesus said the exact opposite of what this guy's saying. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, I want to turn to 1 John chapter 3. It's in the New Testament of the Bible. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, we're going to put it on the screen for you. Uh, but 1 John chapter 3 talks about this idea. So ready? We'll put it up for you. It says, uh, 1 John chapter 3, it starts out, it says, God is love. That's pretty cool. Verse 9, it says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I'll explain that. Verse 11, it says, Dear Yeah, you better explain that because that's like the gospel. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we can't, wouldn't fear that there's no life in this life. And the passage you're reading doesn't even prove that. <sighs> Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We're going to jump to verse 16 where it says again, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Now, there's some things I hope you notice. Yeah, I noticed that you weren't actually reading the passage in context. You were just kind of, you know, one verse here, one verse there. And, you know, it's all from the same chapter. I mean, that's great. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, the and the perfect love casts out all fear thing. Well, why do I feel like what you've really done here is... Um, well, twist the passage and change what is meant by perfect love casts out fear. What fear of what? Uh, what what is uh, John referring to here? Um, I yeah, we're, no light is being shed here at all. Um, but uh, let's see here. Yeah, First John chapter four, one John four. 
he was all over the place. I thought maybe we, what we could do is read a little bit of it in context, see if we can kind of piece together what's going on here. First um, John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This is written against the Gnostics, by the way. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. By the way, it needs to be confessing the historical Jesus, the, the Jesus preached by the apostles, not some made-up Jesus. Just because somebody's got the name Jesus doesn't mean they're talking about the biblical Jesus. Okay. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and, well, the world listens to them. Mm-hmm. That's why secret-driven churches are so popular. Now, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, so let us love one another, for love is from God, and and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By the way, what's going on here? This isn't if you love God, then you are saved. If It's if you are saved, you love God. Yeah, it, 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 the, the sentence, if you understand it from the Greek, would kind of work this way. If the cement is wet outside, then it's raining. Okay, that's that's what you say. You go, oh, okay, so if it's if the cement is wet, then I know that it's raining. Right, same thing here. If you love God, then you are from God. If you love, then you are from God. It's not that you have to love in order to be from God, because that would turn basically this into a work that you have to do, keeping the law. The law is love God and love your neighbor. That's the summary of the whole law. But no, if you love, if you are truly saved, you love God. It's the natural fruit of somebody who is repentant and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Has been regenerated through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. So, so here we go, beloved. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not uh, who anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Not No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior in the, of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Notice these are the verses he skipped. Uh, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And this is and this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, is so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Okay. Put it back into context. Notice all the gospel centricity of this passage in 1 John 4. All of this focusing in on Christ, and we love because he first loved us. And when it talks about perfect love casts out fear, it's not talking about the fear of the routine, the fear of there's no life in this life. Yeah. Um, the concept that Vince over at Viva La Verve is preaching here isn't actually not found in the text, and it's not found in the scriptures. He's not telling you the truth. You can keep looking at those verses if you want. One thing I hope you notice is this repeating idea that God is love. Did you pick that up a couple times? That's something, isn't it? It's, it's saying not that God loves. It's much deeper than that. It's saying love is who God is. It's the essence of his person. It's, a, it's his character. God is love. And then it says, because of love, God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus because he loves you. Because he's head over heels in love with you. And then we're told that Jesus' death was an act of love. That Jesus sacrificed himself on your behalf, on my behalf, because of love. Uh, what does that mean? Again, I hear these gospelish sounding words and phrases, but you've poured no meaning into them that talks about sin, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins, and the, and the propitiation of God's wrath. The, the vicarious penal substitution. We're hearing stuff that sounds sounds gospelish, but he's not defining any of these terms clearly. And he skipped over the verses in First John four that would have clearly defined them. That should tell you something. And it's called an atoning sacrifice. I hate like Bible-y, churchy sounding words because I didn't grow up in church and I don't know what they mean, so I have to look them up. Um, atoning sacrifice means for somebody to die for somebody else to take their sins away. Oh, good. We're finally getting to some gospel here. I felt like this was like pulling teeth to ask you to actually explain some of this. Do, do tell us a little bit more, please. You've got a lot of explaining to do. To make them right with God. So Jesus died so that our sins could be taken off our record so that we could be made right with God. See, that's what you were made for. That's it? That's that's all the gospel that you have for us? That That's that, that nagging sensation you have inside of yourself that I'm missing something important. The forgiveness of sins. What that is inside that you're missing is God's love and a relationship with God. You are made for it. And if you don't... Uh, folks, I, he's not really explaining any of this don't have that you're always going to have the sense that something is missing and god in love sent jesus who in love sacrificed himself so that you could experience god's love and be moved into a relationship with god that so i can experience god's love and then be moved into a relationship with him can you define can you clearly give me some biblical passages that explain this i mean this is just as clear as mud now that's what life is about. Did you notice the idea of life? That real life is available. It says that we, we get to live through Jesus. Did you notice that? It says we live through him in verse 9. 
the idea there is, you know, it's written to people who are already alive. They're not like, really, I get to live now? I mean, they're already alive. But, but that there's a different kind of life available, a better kind of life available, and it comes through Jesus. You say, why? Why does the better kind of life have to come through Jesus? Because Jesus came to bring you God's love. Jesus came to make a relationship with God possible, and that's what you were made for. That's what life is really about. Without that, we don't really live. Oh, yeah, because, you know, all those wealthy pagans out there who, yeah, they're, they're, their lives are, oh, this is driving me nuts. And so, I mean, what do you say to the person who's pretty much satisfied with their life and doesn't have any of these nagging feelings that something's missing? Do you have any gospel for them? So Jesus came that you might live in that love and have a relationship with God where he loves you and you get to experience and live in that love. And that's what life is about. And that. No, this, uh, that's not what life. Yeah, this is ridiculous. It gives meaning to life. That gives purpose to life. You know what else is cool? Not only do we get to, do we get to live in that love and live in that relationship, but we also get to share it with others. And I got to tell you. So it's like a cookie. You can break off part of it and give it to somebody else. Got it. I tell you, from my experience, that makes every day, every almost every moment of every day, and every interaction you have with another person, just like pregnant with possibility. It, it makes. Oh yeah, nothing. Wor- I mean, that's amazing. We have all these pregnant days that are ready to give birth to possibility. Whew. Yeah, that's taught in. The fifth gospel of Thomas, chapter 83, I think. Everything kind of come alive. The last 12 years, I, I've been a, a pastor in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I started a church there 12 years ago. Great church. Uh, and so a couple years ago, I was driving along. I decided to go to Burger King. And I was by myself. I had my Bible in my car. I thought, oh, I'll bring in my Bible and I'll, you know, read while I'm sitting in there. And so I, I brought my Bible in. I sat down in this. He's preaching about himself now this booth, open up my Bible, started to read. And like a minute or two later, this, the door opened a Burger King and this guy walked in and I looked up. There's a lot of people there. It was like breakfast time. And uh, I looked up, everybody looked up, I'm sure and saw this guy and he walked in. It, it, it looked like he was extremely poor, probably homeless. Uh, but the, the odd thing was that he started walking straight at me, like, like a straight line, like looking at me, walking straight at me. And what I did was I looked down so as not to make eye contact with him because I wasn't here for him. I was here for me. And that's just the way I I roll. <laughs> and so I'm like, I was like, oh, weird. And so I'm like, we're looking down, reading my Bible. Uh, but he came and this is like totally for real. He starts pacing right in front of my booth and he's not, there's lots of people, but he's just pacing in front of my booth, only my booth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the whole time I'm ignoring him, right? Cause I'm, I'm not going to make eye contact cause I'm here for me. And, uh, and finally, after like a while of this, he will not stop. And I realized he's not going away. And so I said, excuse me, sir, can I help you? And so he says, oh, Yes, yes. It turns out he was from India, and he spoke, like, very broken English, but I could get most of it. And so he starts talking. I'm like, okay, yeah. And then he holds up this piece of paper, and it was a job application for Burger King. And I was like, oh, so do you want to apply to work here? And he said, yes, yes. And I said, do you need help with the application? And he said, yes, I can help you. Sit down. So he sits down. We proceed to fill out the job application, which sounds really easy, right? Yeah, not so much. It was like one of the most difficult things of my life. Um, I'm like, okay, what's your name? Could you spell that? I have no idea what he said. And then I said, oh, what's your address? And he doesn't have an address. So I'm like, let's make one up. Like, what do I do? I don't know. And so I'm like, make up an address. Have you ever heard an address? So we write an address. And then it says work experience. I'm like, 
anywhere. And I think he said he was a cook. I'm like, stop talking. I'm running cook. That sounds good. Cook. And this is, where were you a cook? I don't know what he said. He might have said India. It might've been Indiana. It might've been Florida. I was like, Indiana, you were a cook in India. Okay. So we get, finally get through this. It takes almost an hour to do this job vacation. And he says, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm like, dude, you're totally welcome. And he walks off and I thought, all right, you know, it took a long time, but that was the right thing to do. I'm so special. My mom was right. Um, and so, uh, and I open my Bible back up and start reading again. And the guy comes right back like two minutes later and he starts pacing in front of my booth again. And, but this, and I'm ignoring him again, right? But it's harder because now we're friends. We just spent an hour together. And I'm like trying not to look up, but I was like, I can't do this. And so I thought maybe he's hungry. And so I said, excuse me. He said, yes. I said, do you, do you want some money? Do you need food? Have you eaten? And he went, oh, oh yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. And I said, sure. And so I got out my wallet and I gave him a few dollars. And he, uh, he appreciated it. He really appreciated it. He grabbed my hand as I gave him the money. He grabbed my other hand and he started to take my hands and rub them all over his body, face, and hair. He was like this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm like, you're welcome. You're, oh, you're welcome. It was not funny. Stop laughing. You have no idea. Oh, my goodness. So finally he gets done thanking me, and he runs off, and I'm like, Woo! Okay. Okay, that just happened. How do I recover from that? Okay. All right. And and so I was like, kind of wiped my hands, got my Bible back open, and I sat there, and like two minutes later, he walks up with his tray of food, sits down, he's like, Hello! And I'm like, Hey! So I thought, Vince, it's obvious. The guy, he's lonely. He needs a friend. Talk to the guy. So I put my Bible aside and I said, man, tell me more about yourself. So, so how did you end up in America, in Virginia Beach? you have family back there? Are they ever going to come here? And just ask him all kinds of questions. So eventually he starts asking me questions. Do you have family? I said, oh, yeah, I got two kids and a wife. And, uh, and he asked me a couple of questions more. And then he points at this Bible and he says, well, what's this? And I thought, oh, all right. And so I, I said, well, uh, this is my Bible. And I said, you know, uh, I talked about, like, about God for like a minute and I said, and God gave us the Bible. Like this is from God so we could know God. And he went, okay. And, and then I said, God also gave us Jesus. And he went, oh, Jesus, Jesus. And I said, yeah, Jesus. He gets all excited and he gets out his wallet and he starts flipping through all his pictures. And then he shows me that he has a picture of Jesus, not an actual picture of Jesus. You understand, right? <laughs> Right. I, I still haven't figured out the intelligence level of the room yet. You get it. You get it, right? So he has a picture of Jesus, and he's all excited. I'm like, oh, this is cool. The guy, apparently he knows Jesus. Okay. And, but then he goes, oh, and he flips, uh, and he shows me the next picture, and he goes, Buddha, Buddha. And he's got a picture of Buddha. And I'm like, okay. And then he flips, and he goes, he has a baseball card of Reggie Jackson. And he goes, Reggie, Reggie, Reggie. And I was like, okay. And then he flips. He's got the weirdest assortment, like tons of them. Things he cut out of newspapers and magazines. He's got like B. Arthur, David Beckham, a goat. Like really, and he, everything. And he's like, goat, goat. He's like very excited about everything. I'm like, okay, all right. And uh, so finally he gets done. He puts his wallet back and um, he gets really serious for the first time. And he looks me right in the eye and he says, um, do you know um, what name of God is? And I said, yes, I do. I said, that's actually what I was starting to tell you. Uh, what, what I've come to believe is that God's name is Jesus, that God came and, and he went, no, no. And I said, okay. And he said, no, God's name is 21. And I said, okay. He said, 
He said, do you understand? And I said, yeah, you think God's name is 21? And he went, no, no. People are looking at me. I'm like, he goes, no. He goes, "Mm, um, name of God, 21. And I said, okay. He said, you understand? I said, you think God's name is 21? He goes, no, no. And I'm like, do you want me to take that food back? Because I paid for it. And, uh, and he's like, no. And I'm like, you have to, can you explain? I don't understand. And so he starts to explain. And I think what he was trying to explain is that he believes there's 21 different world religions and that we, we all think we worship different gods, but really they're all the same God. And there's 21 different names we call God by, but really they're all the same God. And so God has 21 names. And so I was like, okay. I said, I understand what you believe, I think. And I said, and I honor your right to believe what you believe. I said, personally, I, that's not how I believe, but I, I honor your right to believe that. I said, I believe that God's name is Jesus. And that Jesus came to let us know God. And he said, no. And I said, yeah, I understand. He said, he says this. He looks me in the eye again. And he says, do you know um, who God is today? And I said, mm-hmm, 21. And he went, no. And I'm like, dude, I can't win with you. I went with 21 for you. And he says, no, no. He says, he says who is God? God love us. God, feed us. God, care for us. Today, you love me. You feed me. You care for me. Today, you are God to me. And you know, in one sense, he was theologically wrong. I am not God. You could ask my wife back there. She will tell you. (laughs) But there is another sense in which he's right. Because in the Bible, God asks us to share his love with the world to share the relationship we have with him with the world, not in an obnoxious kind of way, but just in a, you know, we love people in God's name and let them see God's love in us. And I want to tell you something, that makes every moment of every day, every every interaction we have with other people pregnant with possibility. It's like, man, there aren't boring moments anymore because I might get to share God's love with somebody. I might get to serve somebody in God's name. I'll tell you this, I used to live, for a long time, I lived with a fear that there's no life in this life. But when I started to understand Jesus' death, that he came to bring God's love and a relationship with God and make that available to me, and that I get to share that love and share that relationship with others, it took away my fear that there's no life in this life. The other fear that we live with is that there's no life after this life. I don't know if you guys have checked recently the statistics on death, but they're quite impressive. One out of one people die. I I checked. And uh, I I like what Woody Allen said about death. He said, he said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And I'm like, okay, I think that means you're afraid to die. And honestly, I think we're all afraid to die. Like, like we can put it out of our minds. We can pretend we don't even, you know, we don't even think about that and whatever. But when we think about it, we're all afraid of death because we live with this fear that there's no life after this life. I think in all my pastoring and friendships, I think I've only met one who was truly not afraid to die. His name was Buster and he was this beagle I used to have, this dog I had for a while. And I seriously, he proved repeatedly that he had no fear of death. Like there was this one time uh, we had a gas leak and we thought in the bedroom of our house, which is on the second floor. And so we had this guy come to try. Uh, the, the explanation of Christ's love and why he came. I mean, can we fill, uh, can we try harder to not explain what the Bible says? 
I mean, he keeps like teasing us with some biblical stuff, teasing us with some actual biblical doctrine. And right when it looks like he's about ready to actually truly explain it, uh, he just steers back. I mean, I feel like we're being teased. It's like some kind of a gospel fan dance or something. Try to find where the gas leak was. So he came into our bedroom, opened the bedroom window and stepped out because there was like a roof there. And he very carefully stepped out on the roof and he's looking for where somebody maybe went through a gas line. And our dog runs into the bedroom, sees the open window, second floor, has no idea there's a roof out there. I'm quite sure runs and just jumps out the window, just swoop right out. Now, he didn't know there was a roof out there, but he still landed on it. And so he comes down and he just starts running around the roof around this little, like gas guy. And uh, the guy finally grabs him and brings him in. And he says to me, he says, you know, in the course of my job, I thought I had seen everything, but I have never seen that. That dog is not afraid to die. And I was like, yeah, tell me about it. Then not long after, one day we got uh, a delivery from the mailman. So he actually like knocked on the door and I had to go open the door because of the package. And uh, my dog, Buster, went running out the door. And he was a little beagle, so you wouldn't think he was that fast, but he was. He was way faster than he looks. And I'm quite slower than I look. <laughs> so I was like, bye, mailman. And I went to chase after my dog and I'm like running after him. And the problem is that he kept getting closer and closer to the main road where there's like lots of traffic. And I'm like, oh man, do not go in that direction. But he kept running in that direction. <sighs> I'm like trying to catch up to him. And then finally it happened. He squatted and I went, this is my chance. Now, if you think, ew, are you serious? You're going to grab a dog while he's doing that? That means you either don't have kids or don't have dogs because you just learn to deal with like grabbing people who are you know, pooping. And so, so I went running up because I'm going to grab him in the act. This is my last chance before he gets into the road and gets hit by a car. But what he did was he ran away from me. And as far as I could tell, he was still in the act because he was running like this. And uh, I wasn't like looking down there, but I'm pretty sure it was still all coming out. And he runs right into the road. Okay. Like that. And I, I think I can describe what happened next best through describing the sounds I heard. And this is all completely true. The first uh, sound, well, once he got in the road, this motorcycle swerved around him. The, the first sound I heard after that was this lady. She was driving a car. She had her windows open and she saw this dog that she was about to hit and she screamed. I mean, she went, ah! the next sound I heard was the sound of her brakes, which she slammed on and the car went, ah! but she braked too late and Buster was too quick because the next sound I heard was of her car hitting our dog. And it sounded like a Brian Urlacher tackle in an NFL game. And it was like, Boof, like when she hit him. The next sound I heard came from Buster. And it was a sound that could only come out of something that was truly meant to be wild. Because he went, and, uh, and just went boom onto the ground. Later that day, I told this story to my wife. I relayed what happened to her. And she said, what did you think when you saw him get hit by that car? And I thought, I told her, I, all I thought was, oh, crap which considering what he was doing at the time now seems strangely appropriate. Yes, he got hit by a car mid-poop. So he goes flying, poops flying. And I thought, I thought to myself, he's dead, right? I mean, he's dead. And I'm thinking, do I carry him back? Do I have to pick up the poop? <laughs> 
can I be excused one time from picking up the poop because the dog's dead. I got to carry the dead dog. And so I start walking over and then I saw a sight I will never forget and never understand because Buster jumped up, looked at me and tore past me running at full speed. Whoosh! And I was like, I couldn't believe he was alive. I couldn't believe he could move. I couldn't believe he could move that fast. And so I went, Buster? And finally he stopped and he looked back and I'm pretty sure the look he gave me was kind of like, did you get the license plate number? Because <laughs> he was just kind of like this. And I walked over and picked him up and brought him home. And this dog, Buster, I'll tell you about some more stories about him some other day. He was not afraid to die. But I have not met any person who could say the same. There are people who say that. You might say that. But we fear death because we fear that there's no life after this life. No, I think people fear that there is life after this life. And they're going to have to stand before God and give a, an accounting because... Romans 1 makes it clear we have the law of God written on our heart, and it's uh, daily accusing us of our wrongdoings. <sighs> but the resurrection of Jesus takes away our fear that there's no life after this life. Because Jesus, kind of like William Wallace in the movie, was executed. He was executed in the most what, what experts consider the most painful method of execution ever devised by man. And, uh, and he was killed. And then professional executioners were sent to make sure that he was actually dead. They said, yes, he is. Then he was put in a grave. And then they put guards outside the grave to make sure that no one would tamper with the body. And then three days... We're hearing uh, something that sounds like the gospel story. Days later, Jesus was gone. The body was gone. The, the grave was empty. The guards couldn't explain what happened. And then Jesus starts appearing to people. Not a select few. Hundreds and hundreds of people start claiming that they've seen Jesus alive, resurrected from the dead. Let me show you one passage that talks about this in the Bible. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to turn there, if you want, we'll put it back up on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this. It says, for what I received, I passed. Now, don't get... Too excited, like, oh, wow, look, he's going to preach the gospel. I, I know where this is going. I'm glad that he's gone to 1 Corinthians 15. But one of the things that's really wrong with this sermon is, is that he's taking historical facts and, you know, about Jesus and mixing them with this other message, this other interpretation of what the cross is all about. So I'm glad that he's using 1 Corinthians 15. I've used it to chastise him. That being said, though, the devil is in the details. How is he interpreting this event? And so far, the only way he's interpreted is that, uh, you know, this is all about uh, basically Jesus dying and rising again so that we don't have to have the fear that, um, well, that there is no afterlife or the fear that that you can't have a really fulfilling life here. So you know, just because somebody references a gospel passage and reads it in church if they don't tell you what it really means or if their commentary contradicts what the scriptures uh, talk about regarding the gospel, uh, then we've got a problem. So let's uh, hear his use of 1 Corinthians 15 here. Pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And what that means according to the scriptures is that this was all predicted. Like in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before, it said this would happen. Uh, verse 5, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And you think, well, they could have just said he appeared. I mean, he, they were, those were the friends. But then verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. 
though some have fallen asleep, and that means died. And then verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Did you notice, there's a really interesting little verse in here, a little, a little uh, couple words there. It says, many of whom are still alive. This was written just after the resurrection of Jesus. And what he's saying is, listen, if you're cynical, if you don't believe this, there are hundreds of people who saw Jesus risen from the dead. Go ask them. Go ask them if it really happened. That's pretty powerful. Jesus rose from the dead. It's recorded here in the biblical records. It's also recorded in non-biblical records from the time. Think about that. Historians from Jesus' time, not in the Bible, not Christian historians, regular historians, wrote about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That's interesting. You know, more people have tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus than any other event in all of human history, but they still haven't found any evidence that it didn't happen. Instead, they just continue to mount up evidence that it actually did. And, And this is really good news for us. Because Jesus promised he would raise from the dead. He said, I am going to die, and then I will raise three days later. If I don't, throw away all my claims. Forget about me. But if I do, that's a pretty good trick. Hey, now, he's describing the biblical Jesus. Now, here's the problem. Okay, this he's using true facts about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to prop up a foreign message about Christ, that he came to set you free from being a cubicle dweller, you know, a living dead kind of thing. See, that's the problem. He's mixing truth and error here, and um, you know, he's trotting out the biblical Jesus to kind of lend, you know, the, so the biblical Jesus will lend credibility to the, well, not-so-true gospel that he's preaching. If I can do that, you might want to listen to everything I've said. And so Jesus' resurrection gives credibility to who he was, that he truly was the one God sent to bring his love and to bring a relationship with God to this world. Jesus also promised that we would raise from the dead. He he kind of said, I'm setting kind of a, a template that you're going to follow. You're going to live, you're going to die, and then you will raise from the dead. He said, this life is not all there is. That That nagging sense you have that there's gotta be more, part of that is that there's life to come. What Jesus says is, it's like this life is like spring training. This life is preamble. Death, it's not an end, it's a door. And there's an eternal life that awaits us. I mean, that takes away our fear that there's no life after this life, because there is. There is. Everyone dies. Not everyone truly lives. A true life is life with freedom. Freedom from our fear that there's no life in this life. Freedom from our fear that there's no life after this life. Every- How about freedom from uh, me suffering the consequences of my sin and God justly punishing me for them? Again, he's not really preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He's said some historically accurate and biblically accurate things about Jesus to this watered-down, feel-good message that completely misses the point of why Christ died and rose again. Every man dies. Not every man truly lives. But one man died that everyone may truly live. And that man rose from the dead that we may be confident that there's life after this life. So he rose again so we can be confident of life after life. Give me a break. 
go just read the scriptures and shut up is what this guy needs to do. These I'm telling you, these seeker-driven pastors, they need to stop stop with these stupid topical sermons designed to make people feel good. Open up the text and let God's word speak. Let stop putting a muzzle on God. They're going to be held accountable for muzzling God and true sound biblical doctrine. History is written by those who hung heroes. You may not like me saying this, but in a very real sense, you and I are responsible for Jesus' death. In effect, we hung the greatest hero who ever lived. Please, more details here. We're steering back towards the gospel. But there's good news. The good news is that God allows you to write your own history. Huh? Now, it is true that the, the pages of your past, the ink is already dry on those. But you get to write the rest of your book. What? I get to write the rest of my What are you talking about? You get to write the rest of your history. And God has made this offer available to you that there is life in this life. And life comes through having a relationship with me where I pour my love into your life. And, and you can share it with others. And there's this confidence that you get to have that there's life after this life. God offers that all to you, and he offers it as a gift. It's not something you can earn. It's just this free gift that he offers to you that you can, you can say yes to. Jesus, Pelagianism. Jesus tells us in the Bible how to say yes to that. Uh, like in Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And my guess is that for a lot of you, that brings up all kinds of questions. You're like, okay, wait, why do I have to believe? And, and what does it really mean to believe? And why do I have to be baptized? What if I already was baptized? All kinds of questions. And that's why we're doing this class called Verge. Uh, we're doing this six-week class, hour and a half, 6.30 to 8 p.m. on Sunday nights. Starts three weeks from today, April 25th. And we will answer those questions. We'll just talk through in a very conversational, no, no you know, pressure kind of way. Uh, you, you are not serious. That If somebody tells you they've already been baptized, they, that doesn't count, and they have to be re-baptized by you? I mean, unless, of course, they were baptized in like a cult, you know, like in a Mormon church or Jehovah's Witness, you know, some apostate false cult. But you're saying if somebody's actually been baptized, they have to be rebaptized by you. Why should we believe this stuff? Like, why should you believe the Bible? And what does it mean to, to say yes to God? How do you say yes? And what does it mean to believe? And why should you be baptized? Or should you be baptized? And what does it look like to really follow Jesus? And how do I live in a relationship with God? I can't see the dude. And, and how do I live in his love? And how does that change my life? And we'll talk through all that and more. And it will be really good. And so if you have questions, if you're wondering, if you're on the verge, if you're on the verge of investigating Christianity, if you're on the verge of making an important decision, if you're on the verge of taking a net... Yeah, if you're on the verge of investigating Christianity, get out of this church. I mean, it doesn't sound like you're actually going to hear it. ...step towards God. If you're on the verge of faith, on the verge of baptism, th- then I would really encourage you to take this class. And we'll have fun and we'll talk... Yeah, I'm at the verge of turning the sermon off. ...through all of it, we'll answer questions and we'll look at what the Bible has to say. And you can sign up for that today. Uh, in the lobby, or you can sign up at our website at www.vivalaverve.org. So we're just about done. I'm going to have the band come back up. Uh, but but while, uh, well, before they do, or before they do the next song. All right, we're going to stop right here.
All right, so what do we hear here? A sermon supposedly about Braveheart that really wasn't about Braveheart, but it was supposed to be a touching stone that brought us to Christ. And we heard some true things about Jesus, some true things that, well, kind of brushed against the gospel, sort of. But then when you fleshed out the details of it, it sounded completely different, uh, completely foreign. Yeah, this is a ex- perfect example of mixing truth and error. And see, the thing is, is that deception is not one of those things where, um, you know, what's going to happen is he's going to get up and say to you, hey, listen, everybody, hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you've heard the Bible say this, but actually Jesus was a green Martian and he actually lives on the second ring of Jupiter. Yeah, on the backside of the of the moon Europa. Yeah, it's true. I mean, yes, it doesn't work like that. Usually what happens is you mix truth and error. That's what the Galatians did. They mixed truth with error. They mixed the gospel with works. This guy, I I mean, I, he read 1 Corinthians 15, good on him. But he didn't really talk about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Every time he got close to really explaining sin, he never got to it. And so he he sold the gospel as like, well, you know, listen, if you really want to have, you know, get rid of those nagging feelings you have and that hole that you might have in your life, feeling like things aren't up to snuff, that you're missing something, well, then you need to make a decision, you know, uh, to, uh, you know for Jesus, you know, so that you can have this life and you can overcome the fear of, what did he say? Uh, the fear that there is no life after life and the fear that there's no life in this life neither of which are the things that Christ died for. And I question the premise. I don't I, I don't think the majority position in humanity is, is that people are sitting there going, you know, what I really fear is, is living in a cubicle and having to spend my life in the routine every day. No. And I don't think people are sitting there when they think about the afterlife, they're sitting there going, <laughs> I'm just afraid that when I die, there's nothing. I just, uh, no, I think because we had the law written on our hearts, as Scripture says, People have their hearts accusing them, and and not only that, the the book of nature makes it pretty clear there's a God, and you have to suppress the truth to deny it. So I think the majority position is, is that most people realize, yeah, there's a God, and I'm going to stand before him someday, and, well, I got the law accusing me, and, you know, maybe things won't do so well, but I'm a pretty decent person, so I kind of am hopeful that things are okay, but they're nervous about the prospect of dying and standing before him. And so when John the Apostle talks about perfect love casts out fear, he specifically talks about the fact that fear having to do with punishment. So perfect love, the perfect love of Christ, his life, death, resurrection on the cross, a propitiatory sacrifice for our sins that declares us righteous you know, in Christ, okay? Uh, through the gospel, we repent of our sins and re- recognize that we are wicked sinners who deserve God's wrath and that Christ died for our sins and he calls us to repent and be forgiven. And then what happens is we're regenerated. We have a new life and uh, that and in Christ, that perfect love that God has for us, because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We love because he first loved. It casts out fear. It casts out that fear of punishment. But see, he skipped over those verses and put together a tapestry that borrowed heavily from gospel terminology, but didn't actually deliver on the goods. 
And that's the major problem with this sermon. And so this sermon, I mean, as, as relevant as it is, it is. I mean, loved the movie Braveheart. Um, yeah, this one was fraught with error and problems. So, all right, need to remind you all. Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Sins, yeah. Transgressions of God's law. Yeah, th- yeah. you get what I'm saying. Amen. Amen.